There are a number of places in the Bible where it talks in the New Testament about through the knowledge of Him, things being multiplied unto us. Peter says, through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, the increasing in knowledge, grace is multiplied unto you. So there are a number of places where the Bible talks about knowing Him. And we've spent most of this year, and we will probably spend the rest of this year on different aspects of just this question that Jesus Himself raised in Matthew chapter 16 when He turned to His disciples and said, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, you know, some say you're Elijah, some say you're the prophet, some say you're, you know, and he says, but here's the question, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus to you? Who am I to you? And that's the question that we're being asked this year. Who is Jesus to you? Not just sitting in church today and saying, oh yeah, I know he's the son of God, but who is he in your life? Who is he when the pressure's on? Who is you when they're letting people go at work? Who is he when the, when there's more month than there are more bills than there are month? Who is he when when in just living out the issues of life? Who is he when you find somebody that work doesn't like you and they're saying things about you that aren't true and you just want to you've got all kinds of things you know to say about them. You know just how to tear them down to size and something inside of you saying, mm, "Who is he to you then? Who is he to you then?" We see that God gave the answer because through Peter, in a revelation through Peter, he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we've been spending these weeks and really months looking at what that means, that He's the Christ, and now we're looking at what it means that He's the Son of God. And we've seen really three basic things. There are probably more if we spent more time on it. But the first thing that we see out of this is that because God gave us His Son, that tells you how much He loves you. We spent a lot of time on that. God gave you, for your life, He gave His very best. He didn't just find out what He had to do to get by so that you could get saved. He reached for the very best He had, and that tells us how much He loves us. And we spent a lot of time looking at scriptures on that. I'm not going to go back over that this morning. Second thing we saw that it means that, 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 that Jesus as God has come in the flesh means that therefore how we treat Jesus is a reflection of what we think of God. And that's why Jesus is the issue. Many people out there are willing to talk to you about God. But the moment you mention Jesus' name, everything changes. And now they respond to you or they react to you. Not on, they don't see you anymore. If you're sitting there talking to somebody at work or something about God did this and God did that, most of the time they'll go along and say, yeah, okay, yeah, that's good for you. Good. But the moment you say Jesus, they don't see you anymore. They see Him. And the way they respond to you is what they think of him and what he means in their life. And we saw that's because what happens is when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, God, in all of his generality that we can't really describe, now became specific and concrete so that they could see him, they could hear him, they could know what he was like. And that's confrontational. Because as long as God's some general concept out there, you can pull out of Him what you want Him to be. You can turn Him and mold Him into what you want Him to be. But when He became a man and walked among us and now did specific things and said specific things, you either accept Him or you reject Him because that's who He is. So God became specific. The third thing about that it means to us that God became flesh is what we're going to begin to look at this morning. So turn with me to John chapter 1. Again, this is what we've been using for these scriptures. And I'm just going to read to you some scriptures because we've gone over most of these and I don't want to spend the time this morning. 
John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, before all of this was created, was the Word. We've talked about what that means. The Word here means the full expression of God. The full expression of His character, His nature, and His will. All of that was expressed in Him in the Word, the second person of the Godhead. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So you have God, the Father, and the Word. So there are two distinct beings, and the Word was God. So we see in the beginning the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then it says, He was in the beginning. So now we see that this Word has a personality. Then down in verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh, became a human being, and dwelt among us. And of course, that's when He was born in Nazareth and walked for 30-some years on this earth and lived among us. And we beheld His glory. Now we could behold God's glory. Up until this time, the only time they'd seen God's glory was either on Moses' face when he came down off the mountain or in the tabernacle when the glory of God came shine, shined out of the center of that tabernacle and they could see a pillar of fire. But it was only, it was only an, uh, an impersonal reflection of God's glory. But now because the Word... The full representation of, God, representation of God becomes flesh and dwells among us. We beheld His glory. The only begotten of the Father, and this is what we, begot, we saw about Him, full of grace and truth. I'm going to read another scripture to you. You don't have to turn there because I don't want to spend time on this. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the Father. Speaking is a way of communicating. So Hebrews is, the author of Hebrews is saying, in the past God has communicated Himself through our forefathers, through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and through the prophets. He has in these last days now spoken to us or communicated Himself to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the worlds. And now He's going to describe this Son who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, upholding all things by the word of His power, when He by Himself purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That word that's used here, this is the New King James, the brightness of His glory is a word that means an outshining. We've talked about that before. An outshining. It's not like He reflected God's glory, because something that reflects doesn't absorb any of it. It just the light just bounces off of it. But an outshining is someone that does is is a, is a process by which I don't create the power, but I have absorbed it and then I regenerate it, like the dials on your watch that absorb the light, and then when your lights go out, it now ref, it now shines that light out. That's what this word means. So it's the outshining of His glory. He is absorbed in the presence, so everything comes from God. Everything comes from the Father. That's why Jesus said at one point when a man came to Him and says, Good Master, and He's about to tell Him something or ask Him something, and Jesus stops and says, No, 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 no. There's only one good. This is Jesus, who never sinned. He never, fa- he never faltered. And yet He says, 
about himself, recognizing, no, 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 you've got to understand, the source of my goodness isn't coming out of me. It's because I've absorbed it from the one who is the source of goodness, and that's my Father. Jesus had that straight. But that's true of you and me, too. The only goodness we have, the only goodness we have to live out and give to others is because it's come from Him. It's come from Him. And we're not reflectors of it. God has us absorb Him. And then His glory begins to shine out of us. His glory begins to shine out of us. You'll see that in Hebrews at the end of chapter 3. talks about we have this glory, this treasure in earthen vessels. And it talks about it, it increases as, we, as, as our face looks into Him and we go from glory to glory. That's in us. The glory of God's in you. Just as it was, in fact, I'll let you in on a secret. If you promise me you won't tell anybody. Okay? You promise me you won't tell anybody. Okay? It's the same glory that's in you that was in Him. God doesn't have different grades of glory. He didn't have the glory that He put in Jesus. Well, that's, that's my son, after all. I'll give him the full measure of the glory, but I'm just going to give to you some kind of watered-down version because, after all, what are you? You're his son and his daughter also. Romans eight eleven says, If the same Spirit, if the same Spirit, if the same Spirit, you ought to meditate on that sign. If the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you. The same Spirit. So I think sometimes we have this image, well, that's Jesus. He had the full measure of God's Spirit, but I'm, who am I to have that kind of power and glory in me? So I've got something less. I've got a lesser. No, no, the Bible says the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus dwells in you. He will also quicken or make alive your mortal body. Where do you think the resurrection from the dead is going to come in your body? It's not going to drop down out of heaven. Where do you think it's going to come from? The Bible says it's going to come out of you. That's what verse 11 says. If the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead out of the depths of hell dwells in you, then He will also quicken or make alive your mortal body. Ultimately, He's talking about the resurrection from the dead. Your body's going to turn from a mortal being into an immortal being by the power of the risen Christ. And that power is not dropping out of heaven on that day. It's coming out of you. And that same power is in you now. How come it's not coming out? Because I don't know it or I don't believe it or I don't act like it's so. All right, we better move on. Goes on and says, He's the express image of His person, upholding all things by the word of His power. So this verse says that if, basically, if you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. Because He's the exact image of God. I'm not talking about fingers and toes and fingernails and things like that. That may be so. But he's talking about character, nature, and God's will. Yes. Let's quickly 
give you some other scriptures. Again, you don't need to turn there because I want to go on to something else. Colossians 1.15 says he, he is Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That's Colossians 1.15. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, talking about him, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Talking about those that don't believe. Who do not believe. Lest, why, why has Satan blinded their eyes? Lest the light of the gospel or the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. John chapter 12, verses 44 and 45. John 12, 44 and 45. Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. And there are many more we could look at, but I'm going to give you one final one. That's John 14, verses 7 through 10. Philip had come to him and said, Jesus said, If you'd known me, you would know my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you've not known me, Philip? He who sees has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? So we see that this third significance of, of Jesus being the Son of God is that He is the perfect revelation of what God the Father is like. So we don't need to guess anymore. What would God do in this situation? We don't need to wonder what God's will is in situations because when we see Jesus, we know the will of the Father because Jesus is the will of the Father in the flesh, acting. So we're going to begin to spend a little time this morning looking at some of the things that Jesus did and what they show us about the Father. Now, we're going to talk about some specific things Jesus did, but what I want you to see out of this is not so much the actions, but what it reveals about the heart of God and the nature of God and the will of God. What causes us to struggle in most cases receiving from God is we don't really know Him. We know who He is, but we don't really know His character and His nature and His will. The verses that are so famous about the prayer of faith and faith are Mark eleven twenty three and 24. Jesus said unto the disciples, you know, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou taken up and removed and cast in the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he said shall come to pass, he shall have what he said. Therefore I say unto you, Whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. But the key to that whole passage is the verse before, verse 22 which says, have faith in God. So the reason that we can have confidence when we ask God something, and we're told that the way faith works is when you ask Him, you believe that you received it when you asked Him. Why? Because you have confidence in His nature, in His heart, in His will. Because if you know, I'll give you the key to that verse, is in 1 John five fourteen and 15. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, If you ask anything that's in accordance with His will. Oh, there's the catch. I knew that. Yeah, but you've got sitting in your lap His will. <laughs> it's full of promises. 
It's full of things we're going to see that Jesus did. And if Jesus did them, that's the Father's will. So 1 John 5.14 says, If you ask anything that's in accordance with His will, He hears you. It gets better. Because verse 15 says, and listen to this carefully. This is his nature, his character. And if he hears you, you have the request that you've made known to him. At the concert the other night, I was out in the foyer. My grandson comes up to me. Papa. Papa. I said, yes, John. He says, come here. (laughs) There's something here I want. He didn't come. Oh, Father, Grandfather. Oh, most noble Grandfather. Most generous Grandfather. I know I'm not worthy to ask anything of you. No. He comes up expecting... Papa's going to get it for him. And Papa did. But there were two other eyes in ears observing this. His sister. She hadn't thought of this. She wasn't particularly interested in getting anything until she saw her brother get something. Now she goes around to all the tables looking at this. She has no doubt Papa's going to get it. Because they have confidence in their papa. They had even more confidence in their grandma. (laughs) If you ask her anything. (laughs) A month or so ago, his birthday was last week or so, and and he took us into the, the, the best toy store in the area and already picked out what he wanted. And he's in there showing us picking out what he wants because he has got confidence that he asks us he'll have what he, what he wants. Now that's limited by our ability and still, you know, there's sometimes I say, well, not just yet or so like that. But 1 John 5, 15 says, if he hears you, that's the only condition. If he hears you, you have. This is his nature. If he hears you, you have the request you've made known to him. Now we go back to Mark 24, which says, Therefore I say unto you, whatso things you desire, when you pray, that's asking. When you ask, believe that you got it then, and then you shall have it. Why can you believe that you have it then? Because if you ask anything in accordance with his will, he hears you. And if he hears you, you know because of his nature, you have it. In other words, God's not holding it back. And that's what we're going to look at. That's the specific aspect of the Father. That's what we struggle with. Well, you know, I don't know if I should ask. I don't know if he wants to heal me. I don't know. And that, the moment you don't know, it creates doubt. James chapter 1 says, you'll get it as long as you don't doubt in your heart. And what are we doubting? We're doubting his character and his nature. 
So since God now came in the flesh and dwelt among us, let's take a look at some of the things Jesus did, because if Jesus did them, we know that that's what God's will is. And we know that's his nature and his character. Say, oh, yeah, yeah, but pastor, you see, you understand, that that was when Jesus walked, that was for that time. No, in Hebrews 13, it says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible says about God, I am the Lord God, I change not. And I don't find anywhere in my Bible that said it passed away or ends. I know there are people that teach that and believe it, but I haven't found it yet in my Bible. Because in the same passages where he tells us to go and pray for the sick, he tells us to go and share the gospel. Has that passed away? Well, let's begin to look at some of the things that Jesus did. Because they reflect, they communicate the heart and the attitude and the nature of God. Let's just, without looking at Scripture, let me just talk to you about some things. Because there's too many Scriptures. I've done a study, and you can do your own, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and I cannot find one instance, with one possible with one minor footnote, I cannot find one instance where somebody comes to Jesus and asks to be healed, and he says no. Not one. There's a woman from Syrophoenicia that came to Jesus for her daughter who was demon was, was afflicted with demonic spirits, and he said, I didn't come to, to heal, to minister to the dogs, because she was not Hebrew. And her response to that was, at least the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall into the table. And he said, woman, your faith is great. Your daughter's healed, delivered. So he wasn't saying no, he was drawing out her faith. Now, if it were not God's will to heal, wouldn't there be at least one? I mean, Jesus is God in the flesh. In fact, I hear an eagerness in him. In Matthew chapter 8, begins with a story of a, of a, a person with leprosy that comes to him. Jesus has just come down off the mountain preaching what we call the Sermon on the Mountain. Jesus comes down and, and this leper comes up to him and falls down and worships him. And said, I don't know whether it's your will. I know you're able, he says, but I don't know if it's your will. But if it is, would you heal me? Jesus' first words out of his mouth is, I'll heal you. And before he says the words, I'll heal, he reaches out and touches a man with leprosy. I find no instance. In fact, I find crowds of people that came to him. Later in Matthew, I think it's around chapter 15, verse 35, it says Jesus, the crowds surrounded him, and there were people that were maimed, crippled. Maimed means you're missing limbs. Crippled means you've got limbs that don't work. Blind, deaf, dumb. And it says they came to him, I don't know how large the crowd was, and he healed them all. Now, if it was not God's will to heal everybody, then he might have made a mistake 
and healed somebody in the crowd who wasn't God's will to heal. But Jesus didn't distinguish who was among the crowd to decide whether he'd healed. They came with a need and he responded to the need. The best example of that to me is over in Mark chapter 5. We'll look at that a little later. Where, where, where Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house to, to heal his daughter. And a woman with an issue of blood comes up and touches the hem of his garment. Pastor Garcia talked about that in one of the services last week. Touched the hem of his garment. And instantly it says she felt virtue, strength, power come out of him and she's healed. Now listen to the order here. We're talking about the will of God, the character of God. Jesus turns around in the crowd and says, Who touched me? Notice the order here. The woman's healed first. And then Jesus asks, Who was it that received the healing? Now, if God only healed certain people it would have had to happen the other way around. Jesus would have had to have found out who is this and then discern whether she was on the A list or the B list, on the yes list or the no list. But she got healed because she came to him and touched him. And he turned around, unless he's playing games with them when he said, who, who touched me? But Jesus didn't play games. Do you see that? Yes, yes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is God in the flesh. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You saw that woman heal when she came to me? You saw the Father. Oh, let's look at some other examples. We could spend weeks on this, but there are other things we need to go on. Jesus was never limited by lack or need. His Father always supplied everything that He needed. In Matthew chapter 14, it's in some other version, other things too. We're not going to have to turn there. There's a story where they've been out. He's been teaching all day. And the disciples come to Him and says, Master, these people are about to faint. They need food. And he said, all right, let's feed them. They were going to go into the village and buy food. He says, no, no, let's feed them here. I don't want to stop the meeting. And the disciples, he said, you know, what do we have? And they'd already thought this out. And they'd gone out and done a survey of what they had, and all they had was a little boy's lunch, some fishes and some loaves. And they said, it's not enough. But what did Jesus say? Bring it to me. See, the title of this message is, the much more God. The character of God is whatever you can think or ask. He'll do much more. See, the image we have of God is He's much less. He does what He has to do to be God to you and to cover your needs, but, but He only has limited resources or only doesn't want, to get you, he doesn't want to get you too proud, doesn't want to get you too prosperous, He doesn't want to get you too much anything because He doesn't really trust you with all of this. So God has to hold and piecemeal part of it out so that you can get just what you need to get by or maybe a little more than that, but God's holding things back and you're going to find Jesus didn't hold anything back. 
And he walked with a supreme confidence that his father didn't hold anything back. So Jesus' confidence says, I don't care what you've got, it's enough. <laughs> he said, bring it to me. And he blessed it, and he gave it to the disciples, and then they went out and served the people. He made the, the, the miracle flowed through their hands. And when they were done, <laughs> they took an accounting of what was left over. And my Bible says there were 12 baskets full. After everybody, it says they were all satisfied. And to show you how religious thinking goes, when I was first saved, I was part of a Bible study, and we were studying this passage, and we went over this, and there was a woman, and she said, oh, no, I know how that happened. She said he was able to take those loaves and fishes and, and break them down into such small pieces that he could distribute to 5,000 5, men, it says, let alone the women and children. And I looked at her and said, well, that's a greater miracle. Because it says they were all satisfied. And see, that's what we're trying to be. We're trying to take, oh, we're trying to take what we have. The resources that we have, and we're trying to ask God's help to make it go among the needs that there are, and give me what, divide it up among, and then, and then that's going to be enough to get by. And God's saying that, just bring it to me. Just bring it to me. I'm a God that's more than enough. Just bring it to me. I'll take the little that you have. I'll take what you've got. I'm not depending on what you have. I'm depending on me. You bring it to me. I'll multiply it. Not divide it up so you're, but I'll multiply it. So they were all satisfied, and there were 12 baskets left over. The key was they brought it to him. Are you bringing your needs to him? I mean to that God. Not to the God of the woman I knew 30 years ago. The God that could divide things up into little pieces. But to the God that can take the little pieces and multiply what you bring to him. Which is your God? A much more God or a much less God? The God that Jesus came to reveal was a much more God. Not limited by circumstances. Circumstances of life didn't stop Him. Storms didn't stop Him. Lack didn't stop Him. Jesus, what? Can you see Jesus getting anxious about the economy? You think our economy is tough now. You should have looked at it back then. And they were, they were slaves in this Roman colony. You think it's tough now. It was much tougher back then. And they didn't have internet or cable. Jesus wasn't slowed, stopped, hindered because of the circumstances. Because his confidence was his father in whatever the circumstances were, were enough, more than enough. And that he was more than willing to give it. So he fed 5,000 men, let alone probably 20,000 people with a boy's lunch. Matthew 17 is another great example. They didn't have the money to pay this, the temple tax. And Peter's all nervous about it. Oh, Lord, they've come and asked us about the temple tax. And, and Jesus said, oh yeah? 
He says, here's what you're going to do, Peter. You're a fisherman. Go down to the lake. Throw your net out. Bring in a fish. And you'll find in his mouth is enough money to pay the taxes. Why, why would Jesus do that? Well, there are a number of reasons I can think of. One is, and I won't get into this, because Lafayette talked about it when he was here two years ago. He talked about, you know, the, the provision for the church, because the temple tax was to support the operation of the church. He, says the, he said what the temple tax did is it spread the burden out among the people. And he said the more fish you bring in, the more resources you bring in. But I believe... Jesus also did this with Peter because what was Peter's profession before? He was a fisherman. I, I mean, I, we don't know because it doesn't say, but I would be very, feel very safe ground to say Peter's never caught a fish before that had a gold coin in his mouth. And Jesus is showing him, Peter, I'm not, God takes care of us. God takes care of us. And notice it happened the way Jesus said it would happen. So, but that's just Jesus. Well, yeah, but... James chapter 5 says the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then it turns to Elijah as an example who called, who told, spoke to the, spoke to the sky and told it not to rain for three and a half years. That's an Old Testament prophet. See, we wonder whether God's listening to our prayers or hearing our prayers. Well, let's move on. But the reason is because the image we have of God is that He's a God of much less, not a God of much more. Well, we talked briefly about it before. You'll see in Mark 4, 35 through 41, and there are other examples of this in the other Gospels too, where, where, where there's, they're going, they're, they're, God's will is for them to go to the other side of the lake and there's a storm. And Jesus is asleep on the back of the boat, and they're all panicked. And keep in mind, they are professional sailors, and you catch fish out on the water. So they're not only professional fishermen, but they're professional sailors. And the carpenter's asleep. And they wake him up because they think they're going to die. And he goes up and speaks to the storm, and the storm is still. And they looked at each other. And said, what manner of man is this? You know, the people in our lives ought to have the same question about us. What manner of man is Joe? That he speaks and things follow him. That God answers him when he speaks. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter First uh, uh, Corinthians chapter uh, one, uh, that he said, "You're acting like mere men. We're not supposed to be mere men and women. We're not supposed to be just like everybody else. And I'm not talking just about your lifestyle, but it becomes the image that we have of God, because we see ourselves as mere men and women, because we see God as much less." willing to be much less to us. Oh, he's capable, but he's holding things back from us because after all, why would he trust us with that kind of power? Why would he trust us with that glory? Why would he trust that with us? Because we don't trust ourselves. Why would he trust us? Well, the key is in the blood. 
the blood of Jesus. It's what He did. It's not in you. It's in what Jesus did for you. Okay. He wasn't limited. He wasn't limited when he found out Jairus' daughter died and they was on his way to heal her. He, that didn't stop him. They, all, they thought it was over. On the way to heal. He's, Jairus is so full of hope. It's in Mark chapter 5. Jairus is so full of hope. Because it comes to Jesus. And it's interesting. Here, here's the heart of God. Jairus comes to Jesus and says, My servant, is, my daughter is at home dying. And before he can ask him what he wants, Jairus says, I'll come. And Jesus said, I'll come. And on the way, what we just talked about, the woman with the issue of blood touches the hem of his garment. He stops and ministers to her. And now he turns to go on. And one of Jairus' servants comes running and says, It's too late. Don't bother the master anymore. See, that's our image. Don't bother God anymore. It's too late. Don't bother God anymore. As if it's a bother to God to answer our prayers. Don't bother, don't bother him anymore. It's too late. And Jesus, this is, uh, I don't know if it physically happened this way, but that's my image of it. It helps me. They're all saying it's too late. You can hear, oh. And you can just feel the emotions start to rise up in Jairus and his wife. And Jesus, I believe, turned around and grabbed him by the robe. Now, it doesn't say that, but what he did say is in the Word. Jesus says, fear not, only believe. In other words, Jesus is saying to Jairus, I don't care whether she's dead or alive. I don't care what they say. It's not going to stop what I came to do. So death didn't stop him. But he needed them to do two things. Fear not and only believe. The next thing he did is he told his whole staff, except three of them, stay here. He wouldn't let anybody else come with him except Peter, James, and John. Why? He now needed people around him that would agree with the level of faith of what he was about to do. If it was just healing her, that was one thing. He could handle everybody else. But when it came to raising her from the dead, he needed people that would only speak. And you, when you're in a difficult situation, when you have an urgent situation come into your life, don't tell everybody about it. We want to tell everybody because we're looking for sympathy. And if what you want sympathy, then tell everybody. But if you want God's deliverance, then you tell only people that are going to stand with you and speak what God's word says over the situation. Because Jesus needed that. But God wasn't holding anything back. He wasn't limited by the fact that she was dead. God's not limited by anything except what we'll believe. And if what you believe about him is he's much less. If you believe about him as he only hands out what's needed in the occasion, if he, if he only hands out what other denominations or other organizations teach, then that's what you'll receive from him. But that's not what the Bible says he's like. He's the God of much more. Much more. But right now what we're looking at is how, what Jesus did because he is the representation He's not limited by distance. Little law later down in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 8 in verse 5, there's a centurion, a Roman officer comes to Jesus and says, my servant is lying at home. Sick of the palsy or, or dropsy. 
And before he can tell him what he wants Jesus to do, Jesus said, and this is the heart of God, remember. The centurion tells Jesus the need, and before he can tell him what he wants him to do, the next words out of Jesus is, I'll come and heal him. I want that to dawn on you. That's God speaking. To a Roman officer that had no covenant. The heart of God is when he hears your need, I'll come and meet it. I'll come and meet it. Psalm 107, I think it's three or four times, and there's this, they cried out to the Lord and he heard them. I'll come and heal. The centurion says, I don't need you to come. I recognize the authority that you're in. Because I'm somebody in authority and under authority. You just speak the word here, and my servant will be healed there. So Jesus wasn't limited by distance. What he is limited by is what we believe about him. Because just after this, he goes to his hometown. And it says there he could, he could do. There he could do. Now remember, this is God. There he could do. No mighty works except he healed a few sick people. And he marveled at their unbelief. One, one last point I want to make before we, because we'll have to continue this next time. I struggled with this because growing up, I grew up in church where God was this big. <laughs> I mean, God would do what he had to do for you. And that was reluctantly because after all, we're a bunch of dirty worms. Why would he do things for us? It's like God doesn't know that when he sent Jesus to the cross. It's like he doesn't know what we're like. And I, I had this image that God would only, only release for us what, he, what we needed and that's only if we did it the right way and pled the right way. So I began to go through, I got a hold of this principle that Jesus is God in the flesh. So I began to read through my gospel, the gospels, and see what Jesus did and didn't do. Because I was always taught, you know, you can't, that's too much to believe. You're, 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 you're presuming on God to believe that, that, that God would, because you, you spoke something like you spoke to a situation, like to a mountain, and it would be cast. That you spoke, that's, that's presuming on God to do that. Okay? That's what they taught me. And yet I read my Bible, and I see that Jesus is God in the flesh, and that's what he did. Okay, but that's, he's God, all right? But there are cases where Jesus criticized his disciples. I've read them all. I didn't find one... Okay, now listen to this carefully. I didn't find one place where Jesus criticized His disciples for trying to believe too much. I'm going to say that again because He's God in the flesh. I found no place where Jesus tells His disciples, look, you don't understand. You're trying to, you're trying to act like me. 
and, and, you know, you should have known that that's going to offend God for you to talk that way or act that way just because I did it. On the contrary, the only times I find that Jesus got upset as his disciples is because they believed for too little. An example is on the boat we just talked about. They come, wake Jesus up from the sleep and say, Master, don't you care about us? We're going to drown. Jesus goes up, speaks to the storm, be still. The storm obeys him. It's quiet. They look at him and say, whoa, what kind of man is this? And he rebuked them, saying, why didn't you do that? In other words, why did you wake me up? Why didn't you speak to the storm? He rebuked them for not doing what he just did, for being of too little faith. Even more is the story where Peter walk, Jesus is walking on the water. I mean, how many people have you seen do that? Except when it was frozen. How many people have you seen walking on water? In fact, my belief is when they have a roll call of water walkers in heaven, it's not going to take long because <laughs> there haven't been many. Jesus is walking on the water in a, in a storm, remember, so bad that they think they're going to sink again. And, and they're afraid it's a ghost. And Peter calls out. He says, Jesus said, don't be afraid, it's me. And Peter says, well, if it's really you, then invite and bid me to walk with you. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water until he began to take his eyes off Jesus and looked at the wind and the waves and then he began to sink. And Jesus comes over, takes him, and they go back into the boat. And Jesus doesn't sit Peter down and say, you, you, who do you think you are? That you could, I'm a son of God, I can walk on water, but who do you think you are? These other men, they're respectful and honorable of God. They didn't presume to get out of the boat and walk on water. Who do you think? But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus isn't upset at the other disciples. He's mad at Peter. He's saying, man, you did it. (laughs) You are out there with me. You were walking on water. You were doing what the world says impossible and you did it because you trusted in my word. Come. Why'd you stop? I challenge you to find a place where Jesus corrects them because they tried to believe for too much. He only corrects them because they believe too little. Now, has God suddenly changed in the 21st century? Or 27, whatever one we're in? 2011? Has God suddenly changed? No. In fact, Jesus said, when I return, one of the things I'm going to look for is to see if I find faith. God is a much more God, not much less. God is a much more God, not much less. God is a much more God, not much less. John 14, verse 12, just in case there's any question about this. Jesus, in his last meeting with his disciples said to them, 
You know the works that I did? Walking on water, raising the dead, opening blind eyes. The works that I did. Not just the things I preached, the works that I did. He said before that, don't you know it was the Father in me doing the works? Well, who's in you? The same Spirit that was in Him. He said, then He goes on and says, and the works that I did shall you do also. But He didn't stop there. And greater works. So he, Jesus is not just saying to us, oh, this is good. He's not just saying to us, look, you've got to be careful because you don't know what God's going to do. Don't, don't believe too much. Because, I mean, after all, we're human and He's God. No. He challenged them over and over again to do what He did. In fact, we don't have the time this morning to go back and look at it, but when He saw the multitude and was concerned about them, He called His disciples to them, and He said, You now go out, and you preach the gospel. You lay hands on the sick, they'll recover. You cast out demons, and they'll come at them. You raise the dead, and they'll be raised up. You do it. And they did it, and they came back and reported them, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in Your name. Luke chapter 10. And now He said... The works that I've done shall you do also and greater works. So not only is he not trying to keep us from doing less than he did, he's telling us to not just do what he did, we're to do greater works. So he's not holding anything back. He's not restricting us. So when we come to God with our needs, where are you in your life right now? What needs do you have in your life right now? What situations look overwhelming to you right now? Is God enough to meet them? Well, we'd all say yes. But is He willing? That's the question. And the reason we question that is because we don't really know His nature and His character. That He is a God whose heart is so generous, so open, so giving, that He spared not His own Son and gave Him up for us all. Romans 8.32 How will He not also together with Him freely give us all In other words, whatever God has, just, well, when I left here Friday night, my wallet was empty. When my grandchildren were done asking and I was done giving, I just, can't, I just said, look, it's all here. What do you want? That's what Romans 8.32 says. We're going to pick up here next week because what I want to do is go through the New Testament and show you scriptures that back this up.